0: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock or industry. And today we are talking about Murphy's USA, which is a company I'm guessing most people aren't familiar with, most investors, um, especially if you don't live in kind of the South or the Southeast where most of the locations are. Um, But we're talking with Fabio from Capital Mindset. They run an investing club uh, we're going to link to, and they also run a YouTube page. So we're going to link to that in the show notes. Uh, I want to mention here, if you're listening right now, Fabio did kind of the courtesy for us of really prepping for the show and putting together a slideshow, which I think will really help as a bit of a supplement to uh, to, to the episode today. So if you want to try to watch, feel free to do that. You could do it on either Spotify or YouTube. But without further ado, here's our interview with Fabio from Capital Mindset. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. All right, welcome in. Today we are joined by first-time guest Fabio from Capital Mindset. We recommend checking out the YouTube channel. They have lots of good content on there. But today we're talking about I would say a company most people, well, maybe maybe it's from because we're from the West Coast, but maybe a less known company called Murphy USA. I'm sure the Southeast and people from southern states probably know it a little better. Um but why don't you just I guess, go through the basics here. First of all, I guess, welcome to the show. But for anyone who hasn't heard of it, what do they do?
1: So it's a pretty boring and simple business. It's a gas station. Um, I think with everything, the first thing we want to always talk about, of course, is the uh, total addressable market, right? Um, For your listeners who are uh, listening in, uh, this is, of course, a joke. Um, So I introduced a joke to try to keep things lighthearted. Um, and what I'm going to describe to you is the total addressable market for Fleet Corps is about 170 trillion. Um, so, you know, larger than that of the global, uh, GDP. Um, however, the, the joke here is, uh, of course, uh, Musa has a total addressable market of 180 trillion, uh, which is about 10 trillion more than FleetCor. Therefore, it's a better investment opportunity. Uh, okay, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we don't need any
2: more. All right, podcast yeah, over. It's over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, and, could, and just so
0: everyone knows, Musa—that is Murphy USA. That's the ticker. I guess they will have seen that in the title, but just
1: to be clear. Oh yes, Murphy's USA Musa. We we typically we'll just call it Musa, uh, but yeah, what is Musa? So or Murphy's. Murphy's was a spinoff back in 2013 uh, from the original. Uh, overall larger enterprise in oil and natural gas. So Murphy's was the gas station component. And ever since then, they uh, pursued a strategic partnership with Walmart soon after, which ended in 2016. Um, And that allowed them to get a lot of their initial growth. And so for those of you who are familiar with Murphy's, most likely, or maybe uh, you actually know them from being in front of your um, uh, Walmart. And so they have a very symbiotic relationship. We'll get into the target customer and the style by which Murphy's operates. Um, it's very similar uh, to that of what traditionally you would think of with a Walmart. And then the strategic capital allocationship, which we will be discussing in more detail later, um, that started actually in 2016, soon after the uh, end of the partnership with Walmart. Um, and as you guys, I know, have the theme going on right now for cannibals, uh, this in and of itself is uh, a
2: cannibal. And I think you guys said this one wins for now, the cannibal prize. I think so. I would have to go back and check. Maybe AutoZone is better in the last ten years. It's better. AutoZone's better in the last twenty. But over the last ten years, I think I saw Murphy was what down fifty-five percent shares outstanding. So really, really phenomenal. And it's
1: 33% in more, most recent time. We'll, we'll touch on that. That's It's been really aggressive recently.
0: Okay. Right. Do you want to walk through kind of the, uh, I guess, the financials? And maybe I should have mentioned this, but if you're listening right now and you're only listening, Fabio's going through a slideshow here. So there is, um, if you want to check out these slides, you can either watch us on Spotify or YouTube, but um, I guess for now, can you walk us through, I guess, the, the financials here or do you have anything before that?
1: Uh, real briefly before that, just like on a bird's eye view, what you're looking at from Murphy's USA, what they have to offer as a business, they, uh, are a low cost provider. So they focus on high volumes. I mentioned briefly before how they're almost like a natural partner with something like Walmart. Um, they're never going to be, uh, the competitor charging the highest price they're not going to make the highest margins on fuel. Uh, but they're always going to try to find other ways to uh, profit from a different kind of upsell. And we'll get to that in another uh, uh, topic. Uh, One of the weaknesses though, and I kind of talk about this, I have an asterisk on customers, right? What do I mean by customers? Um, Well, the customer component, if we see like Dollar General right now, they've actually been discussing how their customer is pretty much at their limit. Murphy's actually targets that value-oriented customer. So in times of economic hardship, um, while they do present that opportunity for that customer who maybe is looking more for a value, um, at the same time, we have to recognize that that customer or that average customer base in aggregate is Perhaps getting hit in a different way than something like the the target customer of something like let's go extreme in Costco, where the median income of their customers is over a hundred thousand dollars. So um, the fuel margins is both a benefit but also a potential risk. While the fuel margins is how they strategize and how they get their costs so low. They focus on having low margin on that fuel. They basically get it to as low as price point possible. It also gives them less room for error, uh, which we'll look at in some of their competitors. And of course, um, you do have the opportunities they have within the market, which is mainly from the consolidation. The majority of the industry, still about 60% is still controlled by single uh, operators. So mom and pop. And uh, so there is still room for that. Now, the threat, which we'll get to in more detail, of course, is everyone in your audience is probably thinking about this, electric vehicles and uh, the other larger players that they might think about, by, like uh, Cushtard, and you have some of the private players as well. Um, but you wanted to talk about the uh, financial position, which yeah. one of the things we get to right Before we get into the financials, is actually some of these uh, um, um, metrics that they highlight, which is the the main metric they call fuel break even costs. And I'll refer to it as its acronym, FBC. So it's a simple calculation. You take the merchandise gross profit, you subtract out the operating site costs, and you divide that by the uh, retail gallons. So when Murphy's first started in 2013, they had a um, FBC of about 3.5 3.5 cents. and today it's at zero and they have a target of always maintaining it at zero. So what this essentially means is that the merchandise in practice is covering the overhead expenses and that allows them to have basically the rest of the the fuel sales as pure profit. We'll get into a comparison of margins uh, at some point versus competitors. And they call this the Murphy's USA virtuous cycle. Uh, so I otherwise, you know, um, self-feeding loop, um, however you want to call it, which is low fuel costs, more customers, more retail uh, transactions, uh, upsell, and uh, you also have the lower FBC, which then in turn increases profits.
0: Today's episode is presented by the Science of Hitting Investment Research Service, The Science of Hitting was founded by Alex Morris, who spent a decade working as a buy side equities analyst before launching his own service in early 2021. You've heard him here on the show a number of times, but Alex produces really, really high quality equity research. And in addition, he provides 100% transparency into all his portfolio decision making. We were early subscribers to the Science of Hitting research service. And we genuinely believe that Alex produces research that is on par with top wall street analysts at a fraction of the cost i mean the fact that you also get complete portfolio transparency and 100 accountability is just icing on the cake effectively you're outsourcing a full-time equities analyst role for just 349 dollars per year brett and i both pay for the service on our own and we can tell you that it's honestly worth the money. some of the companies that alex covers includes microsoft netflix and meta roku costco match group Berkshire, tons of others. So if you're interested, check out the TSOH Investment Research Service today at thescienceofhitting.com.
2: So one follow-up there is... The majority of their profits, or maybe all of them, I don't know if you'll probably get into this a little bit later, comes from the fuel. Is that what you're saying? Or precisely. Okay. They they focus on the uh
1: like the the, the metric that we just went over, they focus on trying to get it so that the a way to think about it, the retail sales cover all of the operating expenses for the actual location. And then, yes, subsequently the fuel is go straight to the bottom line. That's their goal. Um, and that's how they try to explain it to investors when when they're looking at their business model and trying to you know break it apart. Fairly simple at the end of the day. Like this is not you know again your most exciting business with all its moving parts. Um, we'll get into like how they actually get their fuel so cheap, uh, which I think is kind of interesting, especially when you compare it to competitors. Um, but they are uh, still a major player. They have a lot of negotiating power. But we'll get to that.
2: So right, the well- finance. Or yeah, sorry. I was gonna ask if you want to go through the financials, but you do have the slide up there for the audio listeners. We got a chart up here of their sales breakdown, which Fabio is about to go through. Of course, no, no. So, so those of you who are listening in, uh,
1: I broke down the uh, the uh, sales by percentage, and you have the petroleum product which makes up eighty percent of the sales, um, and then you also have tobacco sales, uh, which makes up about twelve percent, and then non-tobacco sales at seven percent. Non-tobacco is becoming more and more significant. Management has been. Uh, trying to highlight the improvements in that space. Um, and they've actually been making some acquisitions to improve that space. But tobacco sales, that's kind of the cash cow. We already know about declining volumes in the industry overall. Uh, and so they're very much aware of it. And actually recently with the CEO commentary, He's been discussing how uh, they've really been trying to position themselves, believe it or not, in the energy drink space as the the go-to spot for the, a lot of their customers to go get energy drinks. Uh, recently, he had conducted an interview I forget with which uh news media outlet but because it was him doing an interview of course i read it (laughs) um and just got his uh um insight there but he's been talking about how murphy's has positioned themselves as the go-to place for uh their customers to have a convenient stop for that energy drink so uh overall you are looking at a business with stable margins uh across the longer period of time and do you also have the um uh, kind of dynamic where fuel costs or fuel prices rising can harm the non-fuel sales but vice versa uh you know if you have lower fuel costs you also see or witness an increase in the um, uh, non-fuel sales so while fuel sales or fuel prices increase you might see a decline there Fuel prices decrease. You see an increase there, which is uh, their pitch to investors. Basically, is saying that in any environment, we can. There's a way we can succeed. Um, you do have a strong balance sheet in more recent times that has. In less so because of the acquisition but it's not an issue as far as what I've uh, broken it down to be it's a non-issue um, we'll talk about the debt breakdown um, soon uh, but for the most part that's my summary overview of you know just their financial health uh they do they are in a strong position to continue to do mergers and acquisitions um, although uh, once we kind of break down their recent big merger, there um, there really isn't that uh, behavior that I really don't like, which I call empire building. Um, if you want an example of that, AT&T, Warner Brothers Discovery, <laughs> uh, a telecom buying a media business. <laughs> it's completely expanding out.
2: Yeah, we should hope that they don't try that with, with Musa. That seems to be one of the, the big concerns for a company like this. But Ryan, you had a follow-up question?
0: Yeah, so I guess... We've never really looked that deeply at any of the publicly traded gas stations, but my impression was that they basically sell the gas at cost and make money on the whatever, selling the sodas, the snacks, the tobacco in the stores. Is this, you're saying this is different than the typical gas station?
1: Correct. Correct. Yes, correct. Entirely so. Um, And They well, we'll get into the procurement, but one of the ways that they get the uh, well, we'll actually get into that now. It's if you look at how Murphy's actually acquires their fuel, 50% uh, comes from uh, their own um, a mix, about 40% comes from the actual refiners, direct from refiners, we call it white label, and then 10% comes from you know, just the general market. So, the vast majority of it they're getting at much far reduced price versus a lot of their competitors who strictly get it uh, more than likely from the market or in many cases from the refiner. So uh, them having that mix of uh, acquisition for the fuel gives them that ability to always be basically uh, fighting for that lower price. And again, keep in mind that the vast majority of their competitors, about 60% of the market is still that mom and pop player. And so, uh, in this space, there is that marginal seller effect where you have the uh, local gas station uh, that you're competing with, and everyone's kind of, um, you know, the prices can vary kind of drastically between one gas station to the next. And Murphy's, if you, if your listeners have ever been to a Murphy's, they're typically known again for being that a cheaper option Uh, and then you might have the gas station you know down the street with a higher price and the only reason why you'd go there is just simply out of sheer convenience but you are aware maybe that there's a murphy's right down the street
2: um anything else anything else on the financials yeah we want to move to quick check um you mentioned that acquisition how has the quick check acquisition gone i know they're moving with that into the northeast i believe and correct it has the better mix of i would say not fresh but maybe just food you know restaurant maybe not casual but maybe very extreme fast food stuff (laughs) so what progress have they made adding that to, you know, the they talk about the cross pollinating of the brands. How has that gone? How has the acquisition gone in general? So the acquisition overall has gone
1: quite well. Um, so that's actually, I'll, I'll start there first. And so that what they're doing is they've actually been able to increase uh, food and beverage contribution by about 9% in the year of 2022. What I kind of listed out as what I want to look out for their goal of integrating uh, quick check into their existing stores or some version or variation of that concept because the majority of murphy stores are they're smaller uh, in size Uh, i would kind of equate quick check to for your audience that have been to maybe a wawa um, or a quick trip quick check is going to be more so akin to that where you can get you know your sandwich your soup hot food and beverage Um, uh, you know, people actually enjoy going to those places and getting food. Now, why does the management actually call it uh, as far as their strategy of it, they call it capability building? Well, you kind of alluded to that where they're trying to become more of a place where you can stop and enjoy yourself for a little bit. And that key word, enjoy yourself for a little bit, it plays into the EV trend. So if those of you who have an electric vehicle, you know, um, I myself count myself among that. And when you're out there charging your car, uh, it takes a little bit. It's not as quick as a gas car. So if there is a convenience store there available where potentially I can get a hot food or beverage, um, that's going to be more enticing for me to actually go in there and then they can upsell me on the, on that product. Um, so... Murphy's has identified that as a future need. And so the entire industry, for the most part, is attempting to move in that direction. This is management telling me as an investor, hey, we're aware of that shift. We're trying to position ourselves early. So quick check hasn't rolled out as rapidly as some people might have thought it would. Uh, And that's simply because the current need for it um, in Murphy's portfolio isn't as extreme as what someone might believe with other players. And we'll get to that when we talk about the demographics, what type of customer they are, uh, where are they located? Because that that has a huge play. You don't want to see management just acquire this and then just spread it all over just because. Uh, We want to see that everything has meaning and purpose to their strategy. Uh, Management has talked about that presently there isn't as much of a need uh, for a lot of their customer base because simply electric vehicles aren't as prolific in the areas that they serve. Um, and for the time being, it doesn't appear as though that's that's going to be the case for a couple of reasons, mainly range, uh, existing range for current electric vehicles at the price points that the customers they serve. It's just, there's not a match right now. Um, give it 10 years, we have a different story maybe. But for the next 10 years, it doesn't. there's not really anything out there on the market. And I can kind of talk about the, some of the Chinese uh, products that have come out with the sodium ion batteries that are coming out this year. If you look at what they have to offer, well, it's a cheaper price point, yes. But what are they lacking? A, a lot of range. And in these more remote areas of the country, where you might find a Murphy's uh, that is probably one of the last customers that will want to uh, purchase a vehicle with <laughs> a low range, despite it being, um, you know, at a much lower price point.
0: So, so I guess yeah. uh, I, I wanted to ask kind of about this because it also leads into our electric vehicle question. So is the plan here to slowly make a greater and greater percentage of the Murphy's store base this quick check style layout and right. if so is that are they like going through and retrofitting existing stores to like fit in this stuff is that how is that super costly or is it just the new stores
1: no it's they are actually retrofitting older stores they have um they have a in in their capex budget they talk about imp- just for full disclosure, ahead of time, the capex is actually projected to increase close to 400 million for the year of 2023. This is all part of that reinvestment into the existing stores, updating new stores. Um, uh, so yes, that it is going to be uh, not a uncostly endeavor. It's going to be somewhat of a costly endeavor. It's going to. Um, uh, Temporarily, but not to a big degree, because we'll get into the cash flow projections, um, uh, hamper down uh, free cash flow. But it's a necessary investment. I agree with management, but I also appreciate the pace of what you're doing, which makes sense with the overall broader uh, understanding of the business where it is positioned. Uh, there's um, no massive or- rush.
2: One more follow up on that. <clears throat> Are they? adding charging stations to these places? Have they talked about that at all? I'm sure an analyst has probably asked about that before. Yes. And yes, they have. It has been asked and they have been,
1: uh, again, also at a moderate pace. So they're looking at location by location every time that The CEO has been asked about it or management as a whole has been asked about it. They're viewing it on, they're looking at their portfolio and on a location by location basis, they're adding electric stations where it's needed. But for the most part, in a lot of their, across their portfolio, um, there really isn't that much of a need presently. Uh, It has everything to do with where the areas that they are serving. A quick check when they acquired, it came with a lot of locations that already had that capability. Um, And for some of the places that QuickCheck was servicing, it made sense. But a lot of the places where Legacy, Murphy's, you'd find it it doesn't make as much sense currently.
2: All right. And anything else on QuickCheck or I guess we kind of combine this with the electric vehicle. So anything else on the electric vehicle threat? I know a lot of people when looking at a gas station stock are going to think about that as the giant thing looming over their head. So before we move on, anything else with EVs?
1: Yeah, so with with EVs as far as the um I can talk about real quick the management's commentary on it. So their their overall mission is always to gear towards that lower cost consumer. I'm going to highlight yet again the current barriers for um electric vehicles is mainly centered around the range capabilities, the type of customer that, again, they have, which is more of a value seeker and the price points that we see EVs at and the cheaper EVs that do exist, they, again, going back to that range capability where they don't yet have the uh, uh, option to kind of not um, forego that extra range. Uh, so they can get a, a EV vehicle at, you know, the 30 and below price point, very few, But when you see what those options uh, are or exist on the market, they don't offer that range capacity. And so that's not really an option for the areas they serve. It's not uh, something that the average customer that they target is going to make that sacrifice. Now, I put some highlights, and I'll highlight, uh, again, this is coming from the investor presentation. I'll say it out loud for your uh, audio listeners. So the less densely populated Musa states and lower-income customer base lead to lower penetration and even lower adoption rates. So again, this is kind of reiterating those points uh, mentioned before. And then Musa is investing in affordability for value seeking customers. So just again, reiterating that point over and over and over again. So you, when you're looking at this company as a potential investment, you really need to understand who their target audience is, who's their target customer, because maybe you don't fit in that. However, you need to uh, just at least kind of, uh, grapple with the idea of what that customer is. And there are benefits and drawbacks to it. So I like their current rate of uh, retrofitting their stations. I think that they're aware of who their customer is. And that's something when I see a company that doesn't understand who their customer is, that's a I consider that a huge red flag. <laughs> so uh, overall, I'm I'm happy with that.
2: All right. Now let's move on to the overall industry. I think people... Well, you know that there's gas stations all over the place, right? And you know that there's these quick service convenience stores, but I think the actual size of how many there are across just the United States is quite staggering. So can you talk about how large this market is? I think another thing that is surprising is how unconsolidated it is. There's only a few large players and a lot of mom and pops out there.
1: Yeah, so the... Overall industry, like you just said, is extremely fragmented. You have single stores operators own about 60% of US gas stations, which people sometimes don't, they're very surprised to know. Um, but yes, that that is actually the case. And uh, so the, this goes for not only Murphy, but also their competitors. There's still a lot of room for consolidation, acquisitions uh, all across the board. Um, it also means that your average competitor, or the majority of your competitors don't have the scale that you might have. Um, now, one thing kind of taking a step back on the overall industry in the past couple of years, they have all of them as a whole, the whole industry, has experienced increasing fuel margins. So uh, we talked about that more or less as as part of the risk. While the margin is a strength, Musa, it's also sort of a weakness that we want to be paying attention to. Uh, we have to come to the table understanding that more recent fuel margins may not be realistic or up to expectations of what we should expect in the future. Um, and so when we're doing our evaluation, we want to be you know, at least understanding of that. Um Now, the fuel margins, as you can see, I'll describe what we have uh, uh, on the visual. Uh, We see that The uh, average has been 24.9 cents per gallon. And right now in 2021, or the measure in 2021 was 30.9. To illustrate it, that is much higher than the 2019 rate of 24.8. Again, that's the industry average. And we can see that in 2020, the average was 35.2. We do see a a downtrend. And I can assure you that more or less, it has come down slightly, but not back down to uh, the teen levels. Now, margins... um, Overall, they have been on the rise, but if you look at competitors, uh, they all compete a little bit differently. So, the main one that people might be thinking about is Alimentation Couche Tard. And I promise I didn't say a bad word. Um, That is the name. And they are from Canada um, and specifically Quebec. They are the strongest and largest player by market cap, revenue, whatever way you want to look at it. I will be talking about them a little bit more in just a second. You also have uh, some of the private players like Bucky's.
2: Uh, I don't know if you guys are fans of Bucky's. Uh, yes,
1: we
0: don't have them. I, I don't think we have them in the.
2: I don't think I've never been to a Bucky's. I don't even know what it looks like. I think that's my West Coast <laughs> coming in. But are they? W- what is it like? What 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 is the concept? Uh, it is perhaps okay. So think of
1: mega store concept, but it's a gas station, um, and first of all you you know those companies that have like cult like followings yes exactly yeah Bucky's is that when uh-huh. Bucky's goes publicly traded I guarantee you it's gonna have a crazy premium in this space um the, the amount of times I go anywhere and this is in states sometimes that don't have a Buckys in them I will see people wearing the merchandise of a gas station let me remind you it's a gas station
2: yeah that is a bit strange we don't we, we don't have that what what do we even have out we here, don't really Ryan? we don't
0: really rep rep our uh, chevron stations quite like the i don't know if yeah. we have anything that's like just regionally popular
2: yeah we just have the mega chains out here but shell chevron i'm trying costco. to go the other one, big ones yeah costco
1: and, anyway and one, of, one of the things they're famous for too is is the the management or manager pay uh you, you'd think you know but bucky's or, or gas station manager doesn't make that much well at bucky's they make uh boards of two hundred thousand dollars a year um, they're famous for that. <laughs> um, they they do treat their employees really well um, and famous for being high pay. And if you see the amount of visitors, if you go to a Bucky's, it's it's something to behold. Um, you have also other competitors like Wawa and Quick Trip, which are similar concepts on the food and beverage side, what they're trying to emulate in the future. Um, and of course, the mom and pop locals. That's Uh, Some, not all the competitors, but a lot of the competitors. Of course, Alimentation Cushtard is going to have um, a bunch of brands that you're very familiar with. Circle K example, Um, of course, one other one that you could think of is 7-Eleven gas stations. Um, Now, what is their positioning, which I think is very important to understand. You know the competitors, but where does Musa fit in all this? Um, well, Musa is the low cost provider. Again, their strategy is going to be getting you the lowest cost fuel as possible. So you can come to theirs and you're, they're your choice of fuel and they can upsell you on other things. Um, so you have roughly 40% third party fuel and that's indexed at spot rate. Half of the fuel, again, is blended by Murphy itself. And the they also achieve very favorable rates uh, across the pipeline. Uh, So that's another way that they're able to bring down costs. Now, Couchtard being the largest player, uh, I wanted to address them first and kind of highlight how different they are versus something like Murphy's. Uh, And your audience might end up liking Couchtard's strategy more than Murphy's. It's two totally, completely ways of playing the same space. So they are a global player. You'll find Couchtard's brands, not just in the United States. If you're looking for a global play on gas stations, convenience stores, Quick service restaurants. Hey, here you go. Um, they have food restaurants, cafes in in Europe. They have again, you know, your classic uh, gas stations here in the United States. And they've been playing a lot with different um, themes or or different concepts as well. Their strategy is simple. It's pretty much acquisition based. Ac- acquire new res- uh, new brands and realize some synergies, and that's how they've been growing for the past decade or so. Uh, They do not compete with Musa on pricing. They don't even try. Their fuel margins are going to be typically higher, and they are not going to be even caring about being the low-cost provider. They're focused more so on having as many locations as possible, as conveniently located to you as possible. Um, So again, completely different strategy between there.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, you already kind of touched on them being the low-cost provider, but are there any other competitive advantages that you think are worth noting? Uh,
1: aside from the way they acquire the field, no. There's not nothing that drastic. Because they have the scale that's addressable towards their smaller players, uh, and that still kind of all circles into being the low-cost provider. Going back to that Murphy's uh, circle, um, circular feedback loop benefit that they have.
0: Okay. Well then let's talk valuation because I think this is probably one of the things that Yes. I guess the the buyback plays into the valuation here, but what are your thoughts on the valuation at the current price? I know you mentioned it stock went up the the day of the day that we're recording this, the stock has gone up, but I don't I don't think it's that big of a deal. And then I guess what kind of returns are you expecting going forward? Do you think the you, you mentioned that the buyback is actually accelerating which tells me that it's traded I'm guessing at a cheaper valuation than it has historically I guess just what are your overall thoughts
1: my overall thoughts is it's still it's still somewhat compelling I for full disclosure uh, this is my in my top five holdings so I want to say that because I don't want to I want everyone to know my biases here so this is a top five holding um of mine and I've held it for quite some time now. Uh, I took advantage of some of the weaknesses uh, this company experienced in 2022. Now, looking at the current opportunity, I I do have um, something to kind of uh, illustrate that. And talking about the buyback uh, first, they have a capital allocation strategy of the 50-50 approach, and that's how management calls it, 50-50 approach. What does that mean? Well, they want to do 50% capex, and 50% capital return to shareholders. Fairly simple. Uh, that is broken down by about 45 give or take percentage points in buybacks and about five give or take percentage points in dividends. They have a very small dividend, they're growing it quite slowly uh, relative to how they're growing, you know, for example, their overall buyback strategy. So the management has been very clear that they much would rather right now do buybacks rather than paying a dividend. And if you're interested in that well then you know you're probably aligned with management on that thought there um so the uh the capex strategy that we discussed earlier is referring to uh that that allocation strategy they are uh, uh contributing part of that capex to renovating the new stores um, as well as build out new stores but very few new stores i just want to uh, kind of illustrate that i think it was uh just uh out of their 1700 in some odd stores they added just a you know single digits uh, number of stores low single digits so it's not really too much of that um and you can see here for the visualization um I, again i'll describe it here we do have the cash flow from operations growing much more rapidly than the repurchase and capex uh together so this is trying to illustrate the that the buybacks are supported by increased uh, cash flows from operations. So, free cash flow as a whole, um, it's not that they're going out and borrowing tons of money to do financial engineering. We all, I don't think anyone really likes that. We all know the dangers of conducting that strategy. And you've alluded to. Uh, very early on in the episode, the amount of shares outstanding has declined by a whopping 53% since uh, 2013 and 33% since 2019. That's what I wanted to talk about the acceleration. A lot of that has been in more recent time. They had recently completed about a $1 billion buyback, but then this year in March, they approved, it was March or May, they approved a $1.5 billion uh, buyback. It was March, actually. So they that's going on until 2028. Uh, but management, when asked by analysts, if you're curious, are they going above that 50-50? No, they're going to keep it at about that 50-50. So in line with that range, I love management teams when they're open and transparent to the shareholder. Everyone does, but I like it when they're telling us um, right from the get-go exactly how much they're going to be uh, contributing towards buybacks.
2: And then they actually do it because yes. we've heard time and time again, yes. companies say stuff and then they actually go back on it or come up with excuses every quarter uh, for why they didn't do it.
0: And so I'm, okay, I'm just looking at the market cap right now. It says $6.9 billion. And using that last chart you showed, I think it's they did just under a billion dollars in operating cash flow with $800 million in buybacks. Mm-hmm. That is there... A lot of, you briefly mentioned the balance sheet earlier. Is there a lot of debt on this? What's the, uh,
1: do you think that can really be sustained, that level of buybacks? So the amount of buybacks that they're doing right now in recent times, and we're talking about 2022, has been fueled uh, decently by debt, but going forward, not so much. So much of the debt that they did take on was for the acquisition. They took on a little bit more debt for, again, about $200 million to pay closing uh, fees, etc., and the remainder it was about six hundred and some odd million dollars, nearly seven hundred million dollars for the actual um acquisition. um But going forward, management's commentary has been reframing from using debt to fuel buybacks, more so from operations. So that's why they have about one filling one point five billion dollars approved from here to the end of twenty twenty eight. And so, based on that, that goes into the valuation when we modeled it out. Uh kind of seeing how much is that going to be on an annualized basis, um, and that return of capital. So, But that's a good question because that's something, again, that should be a concern to everyone. Are we going to do financial engineering, just borrow tons of money, especially considering where, what rates they'd be borrowing it at right now? Uh, there's only about $400 million of what they borrowed that is come coming due in 2028 is on the LIBOR plus 1.75%. Uh, the, re- the remainder is, uh, well, there's a credit facility and the remainder of that, which is about 300-ish million, um, 300 or 500 million, I have it uh, written down on the slides, is uh, fixed. And that one is maturing in 2031. So no near-term debt maturities uh, to take note of. Um, But yes, you want to be paying attention. Uh, If you're interested in this investment, that management isn't borrowing tons of money, putting it onto uh, the balance sheet and and then using that to buy back shares. So something to definitely keep an eye out for.
2: All right. Anything else? I know you have a third slide here. It looks like for capital allocation, valuation, stuff like that. What What do you have for us? Correct. So this is something that I
1: found interesting. I wanted to share with your audience, and I'll describe it. Uh, in 2027, they have they actually give us a target, so it's something that we can actually pencil out. Uh, what they're looking for in 2027 is to reduce share count from 21.7 million in 2023 to 17.7. So we have a goal, and so from here we can kind of start to pencil out what it how can we grade management? Because I like it when management also gives us these straightforward goals. And then we can, as investors, give them a grade. How are they doing and follow along that goal and, and hold them accountable. Uh, also reassess her investment if, if you know, they're not complying by it. Because like you just said, um, management teams have a tendency to promise things and then just not follow through with it. Um, we do have a, a cost per gallon, um, of about uh, 30 projected out in 2027, uh, a multiple estimate on the on the valuation of stock of 10. Uh, that's more or less in line with what they've they've been in the past, and so they're just taking the average there. But the share count is really what you want to uh, be looking at there. That's that's a pretty aggressive buyback strategy. Again, going into the theme of what we've been discussing earlier, and you can see that that assumes a one million uh, shares repurchased annually. Uh, so again, something to kind of judge them for and say, Hey, uh, what, how are you guys doing? Are you guys uh, complying with that promise? Or are you guys faltering through with that? So I, I do like that that was included, but that kind of gets into our evaluation. All that comes together. Um, so I, myself and one of the other analysts of the club, uh, we did our own valuations. I'm actually showing you his right now, um, but I'll walk you through basically discussing my own. I didn't, I didn't. Rerate or re my own because for the most part, we came to very similar conclusions. Uh, but I'll walk you through any differences that may be there. But uh, what essentially you're looking at is a company with an enterprise value of 8.2 billion. Um, and you do have revenue of about 21 billion with an EBITDA of about $1.01 billion. The... Uh, Multiple that you see on average longer term. Again, you can kind of expect with what management has guided for about nine to ten. Uh price to book, uh we use that as one of the measures for for uh valuation. So we did a DCF price to book, uh, uh exit multiple approach, even the multiple approach, and a P multiple approach, and then uh, the the analysts blended it all together uh, into a fair value calculation of about $348 per share. Uh, that comes out, by the way, that's not the price point at which we're interested in acquiring more. Uh, so my actual price point of acquisition, if we want to call it that, is about 273 three dollars per share uh the analyst in question that we're looking at it all came about to 270 dollars per share so we kind of came in line we're both his was pretty conservative in some areas mine was more conservative in other areas I assumed a uh, lower contribution to buyback than than he did um, but an estimate return rate right now of high single digits um, is what we're looking at right now with the current updated price so that is that eight percent is as of today.
2: Right. And for reference to any listeners, as we're recording, share price is about $322.
1: Correct. Correct. And so today there was a decent rally in in the share price. For some reason, the timing was unfortunate, but- Uh, Because I I don't like it when the stock price goes up right now, because that also means the buyback strategy uh, each time it keeps going up is going to be less and less effective. But
2: That's right. That's right. It is very counterintuitive for for shareholders, for a a company with a heavy buyback like this. Now, as we close things out, unless you have anything else to add that's important here, we want to always close out these interviews with the risks. So what could go wrong here? Why do you think an investor would lose money owning Musa over the next five, seven years?
1: The the risk actually comes back a little bit into the valuation as well, uh, because one of the assumptions, we normalize the margins out to about 2.5%. So that's also a very important uh, fact to be had, because right now the margins, if you kind of map them out from here on to the end of time, you're going to be on the higher end. Uh, So when we normalize the margins, we decided to do about 2.5%. If there is a deterioration of margins beyond that, uh, that is is one risk. Um, And so I do have uh, a couple other risks to really talk about. So that was... we talked about empire building, right? Well, one of the things that might us also be a concern is a complete switch in strategy, something that worked. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Something that has worked for you in the past decade, and then you simply switch over to this new model that's not as much proven. Maybe you're not as strong of a player in it, and that could cause the core business, the core strategy to deteriorate. Uh, so that's one risk that I've... Uh, identified and I'm going to be paying attention to. This is not a, a a company that I'm just setting it and forgetting it forever. I want to keep tabs with it, make sure that management is uh, doing the proper steps and adapting to the the changing world. Um, and those changes are not destroying the business. So very key point. Because going back to that previous risk that we focused a lot on, that change that is coming is, of course, electric vehicles. How are you adapting to that? Right, Very important. Um, and that's uh, its own point on its own. Um, I also look at tobacco sales, believe it or not, right now, because it is a significant portion of their business. It's not something we can ignore. Uh, how is that faring? Uh, if we do see a rapid decline in tobacco consumption, that could actually impact the valuation. Uh, so we, it's something we can't actually um, uh, ignore. But the main risk, I would say, has everything to do with the overall uh, margin story, and that's if you actually, if your audience sees and was wondering why is the short interest so high. Well, that's actually a, a large part of the bear thesis. The bear thesis currently is that Musa or the industry as a whole, the margins are uh, elevated, and they're going to come down, perhaps, uh, maybe around 2019, 2018 levels at some point, and that is very much uh, a possibility. So your counterpoint to that is well it the margins will come down but not as much as what the bears are saying and more in line with what that trend line we saw earlier where the margins in, in this industry have been trending uh upwards as as they've been pushing a lot of the the costs uh, uh onto consumers and the industry again has been consolidating and they've been realizing efficiency so multiple ways that they've actually been able to achieve that Um, And if you look at a player like Musa, not isolated to Musa, but the larger player, Musa being among them, uh, they have a strategy that enables them to acquire uh, fuel at really low costs, and, again, allows them to be that low cost provider, which more or less... Uh, shields them. If you're the lowest cost provider in your market, you are more resistant to downward pressure on price uh, than, than your competitors are because they ha- they typically have higher uh, prices on their fuel because they can't afford to take on that lower margin. So um, yeah, that, that's the main risk that I see.
0: Okay. I think that answers pretty much all our questions. If listeners want to keep up with you, find more of your work, what are the best places to do that?
1: uh the best place to do that is uh you my YouTube channel uh, and I also have the investing club Capital Mindset which is usually in the link of the on the YouTube channel and we do pitches uh from myself and the other analysts okay and and we will... the
2: the YouTube channel is called Capital Mindset as well or is there another one no Capital Mindset
0: okay okay <laughs> and we'll include that link in our show notes if you want to check it out but uh before we leave here we should throw a disclosure on this. Uh, Brett yes. and I. Brett and I are not financial advisors. I'm not uh you know, Fabio, I don't know if you I'm are, not but a financial advisor. No. Okay. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or a recommendation. Brett and I are general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Fabio, for coming on the show. And we'll see you all next time.